Thank you, Pastor Nate. It's good to be in your midst. It's good to be here from South America, tropical Sao Paulo. Uh, we always struggle a little when we come up here. I have a cold right now or some uh, bronchial problem, but the reason is that there's no pollution in Indianapolis. Uh, I get used to it down there, and it never fails. We go on vacation, and for a day or two, I have all kinds of problems. Well, I've been here longer than a day or two. But we also suffer from things like chapped lips, and I'm, I'm, I think I have a terminal case right now. Uh, so I'll try not to open my mouth very far. It's great to be in your midst. We're uh, one of those couples blessed by College Park for a number of years. We've been with you, or you've been with us, let's say, for 22 years. And uh, we've been on the field of Sao Paulo, Brazil, for all that time. And so this morning I would like to open the word with you to a passage that deals with how God distributes his workers around the world and, and even in our local bodies. Uh, the term here, Christ's gifts to the church, refer uh, to chapter 4 of, of Ephesians, verse 11. And I'd like you to open there with me and let's take a look at how he gives gifts to the church. I'd like to uh, trace this path that he gives people, he gives a plan, and he gives a purpose to us as members of his body. Verse 11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I'll stop right there for now as we consider, as we digest what he's given us here. Let's look at the people first of all. In verse 11, he's given... Uh, a number of people to the church, uh, gifted people, so that the church can uh, get, so that the church was founded well. Apostles and prophets, both essential to the founding of the church. The apostles who uh, served with Christ, who knew Christ, uh, who testified of his life and his death, uh, who were instrumental in inscripturating the Word of God as we have it in the New Testament, the epistles, the Gospels, Acts, and Revelation. The prophets who spoke as from the Lord, who had the authority of God as they proclaimed the word of God. The evangelists, and these are not just uh, these guys we see today with ten sermons and ten ten suits. Uh, These were people who went out from their churches, their local bodies, to testify of Christ uh, on a full-time basis in their communities or around the world, risking their lives in the process. And finally, pastors and teachers, and these two terms in the text are put together for a purpose. I believe Paul is showing us that pastors are teachers. They lead, they feed their flock, they protect their flock, and as teachers they instruct them uh, concerning all the things that Christ has commanded us to do. And as we look at these people that the Lord Jesus has given to the church, we realize that what he's done is he's really uh, propagated himself because he did all these things. He was the sent one as an apostle, uh, God's sent one, the Father's Son, and one and only Son. Uh, he came and validated his works with signs and wonders to show that the word he preached was true. In the, in the way of a prophet, he came and spoke, Thus saith the Lord, and people heard him and said, He has authority. He's not like the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the rabbis that we've heard and all their different opinions. He speaks as from God, like a prophet. In fact, some felt that maybe he was the prophet. As an evangelist, he shared the good news of the kingdom and coined the term uh, to evangelize. And as a pastor, a shepherd, he led his flock and he still leads them today and teaches them. So Jesus Christ has really produced people that can imitate him in our church, in our body. What is the plan that he's following here? There are three major steps he gives in verse 12. If we look at that, he's given these individuals to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I see three elements there. The first step is to equip, to outfit And uh, as a long-term missionary here at College Park, I've been through Dale Shaw's office in the past when he was running the missions trips and saw all the equipment that he had, all the materials assembled together to outfit his people as they went to different foreign fields and served. And in a spiritual sense, that's what our leaders are doing. They're equipping us. They're outfitting us 
uh, as uh, followers of Christ so that we represent Christ correctly. They're preparing us. They are uh, uh, equipping us to, to serve. They use the scriptures to do this. Second uh, Timothy 3 talks about all scripture being inspired of God and being useful. And as an Old Testament uh, professor and, and oftentimes preacher, I appreciate that verse. As Paul told Timothy, all scripture is profitable. He included the Old Testament because Timothy probably had practically only the Old Testament to look at at that point. All scripture is useful. It's profitable for correction, for reproof, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped to do his work, to do every good work. And so why are we here? Why are we listening to preaching? Why are we in Sunday school class listening to the Word? Why are we in small groups, discipleship groups, so that we can be equipped, so that we can be prepared for the work that the Lord has for us? And if you're not taking this seriously as someone who uh, attends College Park, uh, this really is the most important work we can do on this, in this life on this planet is to serve the Lord, being equipped by Him to honor Him and to uh, spread His Word. The second step then, the trained members of the, of the body of Christ do the work of the ministry. Uh, it isn't enough to simply be trained, and now that training has to translate into activity. Uh, you think of a, a, a tremendously large factory full of machines, but with very few people to operate them. Or a hospital full of patients, but just a handful of doctors and nurses. It's not going to function if we as a church are relegating to a handful of leaders all the functions of ministry. God has put us in a body so that we can serve as parts of a body, serve alongside our leaders. Christ never did everything in, in his day. Christ called 12 disciples to follow him wherever he went. Christ uh, often turned to them in times of uh, crisis and asked, what would you do? He trained them. He equipped them. Then he equipped 70 to follow him later and to spread out and to preach the word. And till the, till the day uh, uh, that we stand here now, he is equipping us and he's calling us to serve alongside him. So the entire church must go out and do the work of the ministry. I think of the illustration of a recipe. A recipe involves a lot of ingredients. And uh, as I mentioned in an earlier service, my mother is closing in on 80 years, and sometimes she forgets some of these ingredients, and uh, the final product is not as tasty as it should be. But as we think of a recipe and all the ingredients that go together, together to make that, that delicious meal or that, that baked good, we realize that the Church of Christ is really a mixture of different gifted people to do the work of ministry. And as I've been around uh, long enough now in Brazil and in the United States, I've seen churches of all sizes. And it doesn't take a church of 3,000 people to do the work of ministry. A church of 40 can do the work of ministry because God distributes those gifts in just the right way, in just the right recipe, so that the body of Christ can serve him in all places. It's not simply enough, though, to be equipped I was at the men's breakfast yesterday. The pancakes were great. I didn't find a single one that had only been cooked on one side. Everything had been cooked on both sides and, and was not uh, lopsided or, or poorly done because the work was finished. There was not only, uh, in the case of those pancakes, cooking on one side but the other. There should not only be in our lives the teaching and the absorbing of instruction without any service. We're lopsided that way. We need an outlet for service. We need to use what we've been trained to do. As Jeremiah cites his cake that was baked on only one side, he said it was to be thrown out because it was not done right. We must be useful, baked on both sides, trained but also out doing the work of ministry. The body of Christ in the third case is built up by all this activity, this uh, the end of this verse is very encouraging because we're equipping, we're doing the work of ministry, and as a result, Christ is building his body together. Uh, the members of the body are growing together. Uh, we're seeing growth that uh, results in, in a constructed 
body of Christ. I like construction. I do a lot of it. Uh, praise God for the part College Park pr- played in the construction of our church back in 2005 and six, uh, through a, an offering taken at the Christmas offering 2003. Uh, the, the, our brothers now have a building that they can worship in, a very well-fit building and a beautiful building. And as I watch these bricklayers put bricks together on right angles and, and fit them just right and, and build something strong and, and sturdy that won't sway and build something beautiful, something that's visible, that shows the presence of Christ, this is what the church is. We're being built together as those bricks, as those members, but living bricks, so that we can do the ministry of God and in so, in so doing build up the church. So the church grows in numbers as a result of this. Numbers, I feel, are God's evidence that he's working. We can show to the world, perhaps in a land like uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, where there's a neighborhood where people don't know Christ, the effect that Christ has on the life as others come to know him and go out and reach others and yet others. And that body grows in that location. That growth is evidence that the body is being built up. But it's also being built spiritually. As the word goes out, as we're ministered to, and as we learn how to minister better. I can't say that I've ever experienced more spiritual growth in my personal life as when I began to serve. I was an engineer for five years and came to the point where I wanted to build men instead of things, instead of uh, power plants. And as the Lord got a hold of my heart, I had lots of objections. How can I do this? I don't have what it takes. And I don't have what it takes. But as I got involved in ministry, he showed me, first of all, those areas where perhaps I had gifts from the Lord that I could use, and he showed me his great power. I couldn't be in front of a group this size today without the power of God. What's worse is I couldn't be in front of a group this size in Brazil where everyone's expecting me to preach to them in Portuguese without the power of God. He's a great God. And as you serve, you'll learn some things like I did. You'll learn that the word must be uh, carefully concentrated upon and, and understood before it can be taught. You'll learn that you must depend on the Lord's power. You must depend on his capability because we just don't have what it takes. And finally, we must give all glory to him because he's what brings it to pass. These are great lessons, and they bring about growth in the body. Now, what's the purpose that the Lord gives us here? Verse 13 says, Until we all attain to the unity uh, of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Uh, Unity is certainly uh, uh, one of those... Let me get caught up here. Unity is one of those uh, steps so essential... When we work as a body of Christ, we can't work in a lot of different directions without having unity uh, among us, a, an integral unity as we approach the Scriptures, for example. And so I'd like to mention in the purpose, God wants the church to grow in unity. That unity, first of all, has to do with what we believe. We have unity in the faith. This unity is essential. We need to be preaching the same thing. We need to believe the same thing. And as we sit under the training of our leaders, uh, that's why it's so essential to have good leaders that understand the Scriptures and how they should be uh, taught and interpreted. Uh, in learning the Scriptures, we can avoid the pitfalls of false teaching that have destroyed many churches. A good example is in 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth suffered because of many sins because of their, uh, uh, their allowing false teaching to come into their church. Some even doubted that Paul was an apostle. We cannot uh, entertain that sort of disunity. We need to have a unity in the faith. The second issue here is a unity in the knowledge of Christ. This is a practical aspect of our unity. We need to be working toward the same thing. Just as uh, the church works to believe the same thing, we are working to serve Christ with the same mind. Unity in the knowledge of Christ, I find a great example of that in uh, the book of Philippians. If you just turn there uh, with me to chapter 3, the next book in the New Testament. Philippians 3 shows how Paul strived to attain 
this unity. The same verb that he uses here in Ephesians, he uses in Philippians 3. In verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The verb to attain here means to arrive at a goal. And as much in Philippians as in Ephesians, Paul is saying we need to strive to arrive. We need to get there someday. And so he sees his challenge here in Philippians 3 as that of a uh, almost the symbol of a man in a chariot in battle, uh, leaning forward, grabbing the reins, and striving to reach that goal. He's not worried about what's behind him. He's not worried about past offenses or how people have hurt him or how his, his, uh, he was reared incorrectly. He's not worried about how those beside him are doing or, or how he's competing or, or finding fault with those on either side. He's looking ahead. And in this unity of the knowledge of Christ, I believe all of us as a body can look ahead and strive for that goal. To know Christ, to know the power, uh, to know his death, to realize that we're dead in him, to know his, the power of his resurrection, to realize that now we have newness of life because he raised from the dead. Knowledge is so essential, and a unity of the knowledge of Christ will help us grow together. The other purpose for these gifts, Christ wants the church to grow in maturity. I see these two ideas, unity and maturity, as essential to any spiritual growth. And this passage here is chock full of them. To mature manhood, he says in verse 13 in Ephesians 4. Growing up to mature manhood, which literally says to a mature man. It's singular. And I think it shows the kind of unity we need in our maturity. We're growing together so that we have body growth. A body as a whole is growing. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We have the word measure, we have the word fullness. There's a long stretch in between there. But as we grow, we need to be measuring. We need to be noting. Are we growing or are we stagnating? Are we uh, progressing from one level of glory to another? And in so doing, are we striving to reach the goal? Consider the virtues which Christ displayed, because really his maturity is our goal. His purity, his compassion, his boldness when he, when he spoke truth, his trust in the Father, his capacity to resist temptation, his selling himself out to do the will of the Father. All these virtues, I believe, will be found in our maturity as we progress to that goal. So unity and maturity are so essential here that the author, Paul, decided to plug them into these last three verses in a way that uh, uh, alternates between unity and maturity. I've colored the words so that we can see what relates to what. In verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, which speaks to maturity, tossed to, to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love. And here I see the emphasis on unity. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Maturity, growing up. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Unity. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow. Maturity. So that that it builds itself up in love. Unity. How are we doing in this area? How are we being equipped? Is this equipping having its mark on us so that it's translating into ministry for the Lord? And is that ministry working together in this body to bring about a body that's built up? Are we striving for unity in the faith and unity in the practice of that faith, the knowledge of the Son of God? Are you keeping step with your brothers and sisters in this church as all of us seek to grow together. We minister to Christ in Sao Paulo, Brazil, a city of over 20 million people. We're ministering in a seminary, one of our ministries, which I'd like to highlight right here. This seminary has been around for over 50 years, and we've been training people. We've been training some 
lots of Brazilians, but even some Africans and some other South Americans to do the work of ministry. We equip these young people to become pastors and teachers and missionaries, youth workers, uh, to become professors even in our own school. We work hard to bring our students to a unity in the faith, uh, explaining the doctrines of the Scriptures, instructing them to use the Scriptures correctly and effectively in our culture down there, not following every wind of doctrine, which has really caused lots of problems in Brazil. Uh, There are lots of cults and lots of uh, false teachings in Brazil. We're working hard to see our students come uh, also to unity in the knowledge of Christ, in their service. We have internships for our students where they can serve in our local churches. We oftentimes move into a church and preach alongside the pastor who's going through difficult struggles. Uh, We like to counsel our students and our, our, our people personally and help them through the difficult things in their ministries. We follow up with them as they face struggles in their courses at college life or struggles in their families. And we seek to shepherd them toward maturity and and a unity with their brethren in their personal lives and in the development of their ministries and even in the way that they lead their people. Because we know that they, in turn, have an important part to play in shepherding and equipping gifted individuals in their local bodies so that the next generation can develop the unity and maturity that the Lord desires. So let me just ask, how is, where is your reach? And how are you fitting in to this plan and purpose of the Lord for his body? Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for Jesus. We thank you for uh, the life he lived, the death he died, and the ministry he has to us now as we serve him. May we please you, Lord. May we exalt you. Uh, with the way that we are equipped, with the way that we move out in ministry, with the way that we build up the church. Thank you, Father, for the chance to share today. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2003, China was struck by a deadly disease. Indeed, SARS killed thousands of people and paralyzed an entire continent of Asia in fear of this dreadful virus. The whole nation of China faced the reality of death. Confronted by the truth that life is fragile and that men, women, you and I will all die sooner or later. Two years later, a few weeks after our daughter Gracie was born, Dawn was discovered to have brain tumors, several of them, even the size of a ping pong ball located in her lower brain stem. After emergency surgery in Beijing, her life was spared and the biopsy showed that the cells to be of the mostly non-cancerous variety, leaving her with hopefully many more years of life on earth and service for our Savior. On May 12, 2008, a devastating earthquake measuring 7.9 on the Richter scale struck central China, killing over 80,000 people in Sichuan alone in the space of a few minutes and leaving up to 374,000 people wounded. Wikipedia reports that up to 11 million people were rendered homeless by that earthquake. Through all these trials and tragedies, God has been faithful and he's caused our faith to grow and led many more souls to believe in him. We want to praise him today and give him a glory. He is our rock. Praise the Lord. God's glory. Late last millennium, College Park Church formed a partnership with a young newlywed couple ministering in the Middle Kingdom. It was the start of a beautiful friendship, as they say, and this wonderful relationship has continued for a decade, proving that these uh, gray hairs show that we're not quite as young anymore as we used to be. And through it all, you have also proven to be faithful friends, and your precious prayers and your powerful partnership and investment in our lives and our work, our ministry, our family, and our investment in eternity have encouraged us greatly. And so we just want to thank you guys from the bottom of our hearts for sticking with us through these tough times. Thank you for standing through all these events and all these years and for investing in our labor for eternity as well. This morning we want to look at one of the most powerful sections of Scripture in John chapter 11. As you turn there, I can share a testimony with you guys. This has been one of the greatest blessings for our family this past year is reading through the Bible together with the kids. Earlier in the year, we finished the New Testament. Now we're about halfway through the Old Testament. 
And it's been exciting to see once again God's plan for the redemption of mankind unfold all the way from creation through Christ. Um, if you haven't done that before, and it's our first year to start that together as a family, I really encourage you to do it. And it's been uh, um, just, uh, it's, uh, I know it's a sacrifice of time and of energy. It um, takes a commitment and uh, diligence to get through, but the rewards are eternal. Only three things are eternal, God, his word, and the human soul. And the, spend we, the time we spend with the Lord in his word will not return unto him void. And we realized... Um, If we keep it up every year, by the time Josiah goes to college, um, he will have gone through the Bible 13 times before he ever sets foot outside of the home on his own. And for Gracie, it'll be about 15 times. And so what a precious gift we can give to these kids to give them the foundational truths of God's word. So just a little aside there, and I see it's in the bulletin too, one of the five points in radical is to read through the Bible in a year. In uh, John, we see one of the most amazing statements ever made in history. And let's stand together out of respect for God's word as I read this for us in John chapter 11. And we'll pick up the story in uh, verse 11. Why don't we start in verse 11 there. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of this blind man also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, "Uh, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, but I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you. You may be seated. God is a master at taking trials and tragedies and turning them into triumph for his glory and for his ultimate good. This passage reminds us poignantly and clearly that both life and death are meant to give glory to God. Let's look back at verse 4, earlier in the chapter of of chapter 11 there, in John chapter 11, verse 4. It says, but when Jesus heard it, in in other words, he heard of um, Lazarus being ill, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, 
so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is one of the scriptures that ministered to us and gave us a great encouragement when we discovered Don's brain tumors. One of our disciples read it to us in the car in Parker, the vehicle that you guys helped donate for us on our way to the hospital. And he read these verses and we claimed this verse. And uh, sure enough, God was gracious and used um, that experience to bring himself glory and yet spared my beloved wife. And yet God doesn't always choose uh, for an illness not to end in death. Actually, in this case, it did end in death. Jesus was just telling them, even though it ended in death, ultimately he would rise again. So whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And as Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The meaning of our life and the purpose for the end of our life ultimately will be for God's glory. Let's turn over to uh, verse 40 there. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The Westminster Catechism sums it up so well. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, by chief end, it doesn't mean the ultimate end, our death. It's talking about the chief purpose, the main reason for living, our um, purpose in life, our reason why we're still here on earth in Indianapolis in 2010 and not up in heaven already, is to give God the most glory we can while we're still on this globe. All the pain, all of the suffering, all of the trials and tough times that you and I endure during our walk on this earth is designed to lead us into a closer walk with our crucified Savior and Lord, calling us to a life that's lived in light of eternity. In each of the three examples I shared with you earlier in the introduction, we can see how the Lord orchestrated a spiritual uh, victory. First of all, in the... uh, case of SARS that swept across the land of China, hundreds of people died in Beijing alone, the capital, the city where we lived. But millions and millions of people, many of them for the first time in their life, were confronted with the fact that life is short. It's like a flower. It's like grass. It's here today and gone tomorrow, it tells us in Psalms and in Job. We're like a vapor. And so for the first time in their lives, they were confronted with the fact that life is short. And the more important thing is um, afterlife, where are we going? We would see people almost every day. A few people had enough bravery to venture out on the streets. And we'd say, are you afraid of SARS? And they'd say, yes, I am. And we'd say, are you afraid of dying? And they'd say, yes, we are. And we'd tell them, well, actually, we're not afraid of SARS. And they're like, you're not? Why not? We said, well, we know the great physician. We know he's capable of healing us if we do get SARS. And if he doesn't, as Job said, even if he kills me, I will still trust him because I can see my Redeemer face to face. And we told them, we know where we're going when we die. We're going to heaven. They're like, wow, I don't have that hope. I don't have that peace. And so it was a wonderful time to be able to share the gospel with many, many people. When Don nearly died from the brain tumors, it opened doors for us to be able to minister in the hospital to the nurses, to the doctors, to the staff, to the other patients. Even as they ministered to us as a family, we were able to tell them the good news of eternal life. Our disciples would come to visit us and pray with us and we'd have a chance to uh, encourage them and build them up in the faith and in the trials that they were going through. Finally, we saw an awesome thing um, in the uh, earthquake that happened two years ago. Even though many lives were lost, uh, today, two years later, God is doing a great thing in bringing life out of death and bringing light out of darkness. Um, that earthquake that shook central China changed the country really forever in a dramatic way. And not just because of the loss of life, but because of the response of the people from all over China that came to help with the relief work. And the most exciting thing to us is as those people came and they passed out water bottles and they gave out food and they gave out blankets and um, saved the lives of many, many people uh, physically, um, after a few weeks they were out of immediate danger and they had moved into tents and uh, most of those relief workers all went home. But there was a number of Christian young people who went and said, we can't go home. These people are just as lost as they were before we came, or even worse. They were experiencing uh, daily tremors. At this point, they're still almost on a weekly basis, aftershocks going on. And the people were living in fear and hopelessness and the uh, impending doom and death. So they said, we can't go home. We have to stay here. So they've been there for two years, ministering to the survivors. They do anything they can do. They cut their fingernails. They wash their feet. They cut their hair. They um, cook for them. They get down on their hands and knees and scrub the floor. They do anything they can do to show the people that Jesus is real and that he loves them and that God is there with them. They're not alone. And so it's just been an exciting thing for us to, uh, over the last uh, year, go down there and encourage them, to equip them 
Um, there's going to be 150 of them by the end of the year, and they're turning it into a mission training base for these young people to be able to serve the Lord in full-time Christian ministry for the rest of their lives inside China and outside China. This young man um, drove 42 hours up into the... Um, into the um, second earthquake region that occurred in this May where several thousand people were killed in the Tibetan plateau, 42 hours up into the snow with six of the others to bring relief work to there as well. And so it's been exciting to see God opening doors and to have opportunity to be able to reach this generation of Chinese. Their grandparents believed in Buddhism. Their parents believed in communism. This generation believes in nothing. And if you ask them, what's your faith? They will say, oh, I am a nothing. I believe in nothing. A few of them will say, I believe in myself. And so really we have 300 million kids in China under the age of 18, most of them looking for the truth and looking for something to trust in. So we praise the Lord for the materials. We shared with you last year about um, how the children's Bible has been a a new project that's very, very powerfully um, used. It's really a miracle that it was ever able to be translated and published there legally and other Christian books like it. And so pray as uh, young people read these uh, for the first time in their lives, really the first time in the history of the country, 5,000 years, that this generation has had an opportunity to grow up with access to the truth that Jesus is real and that he loves them and as they read god's word for the first time just as we do with our families that the uh, kids and their grandparents and parents usually it's three generations under one roof um, living together that they will be impacted and come to the know the lord as a personal savior as well the second truth we learn from this passage is that christ's purpose and the main goal of his earthly ministry was to enable us to believe in him The word believe shows up in this passage eight times in verse 15, in verse 25, in 26, in 27, in 40, 42, and 45. Um, John 20 and verse 31 um, says to us the purpose uh, why these things are written is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life on his name. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In verse 13, it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, before we're too hard on Mary and Martha, we call them M&M, the two M ladies. Before you're too hard on them, remember, they didn't have the rest of the story. They don't have the uh, end of the chapter like we do. They didn't know that their brother was going to rise from the dead. They didn't have uh, Romans 8, 28. They didn't know that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And so they did have some faith. They believed. They said, Jesus, if only you would have been here, our brother would not have died. They did have some faith. Um, They knew that Jesus could heal people after they got sick. And it's interesting that both sisters were unified, even though they're very different personalities, as we know. They had the same message. Um, They had faith that Jesus could have healed their brother. But he'd been dead for four days. This was quite an amazing uh, miracle because when you think about it, um, number one, it showed Christ's deity. He is the only one who can possibly... Um, bring the dead back to life. And he had done it a few times earlier in his ministry, but in those cases, it was all just after a short period, a few minutes. This guy had been in there for four days. They're like, "Uh, Jesus, you don't want to open that. He's pretty stinky by now. Imagine if you would, in our day and age, um, Halloween coming, a guy wrapped up in all those... um, grave clothes, you know, you wouldn't want one of your relatives after being buried for four days, you wouldn't want them to dig it up and bring the body back. It wouldn't be a pretty sight. And uh, they were trying to warn Jesus. But really, the greatness of this miracle is that he really, truly brought life out of death. And it was a foretaste of his own resurrection, which occurred just a few days later. And it was a foretaste of our resurrection. If he can bring Lazarus back to life, he can give spiritual eternal life to you and to me as well. So Mary and Martha, they didn't have that advantage and neither did the Jews who moved Jesus to tears with their faithful, faithlessness. Um, but there was a young lady, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who did have great faith. It says in Luke 1, when Gabriel told her that she was to be the mother of the Messiah, Uh, She said, well, that's impossible. I'm not even married yet. And he said, with God, all things are possible. And it tells us in verse 45 that uh, Mary believed God. She accepted the word. Blessed is her who hears the word of God and believes it. Now, remember, she could have been stoned for being caught pregnant as a young unmarried girl. She should have been stoned. 
Um, none of them knew that she was still truly a virgin. That was a miracle. And so she faced the threat of um, capital punishment by her faith in God. That's pretty incredible faith for a young teenage girl to do. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, 17, it tells us about Abraham, another great man of faith. It says in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promises and was in the act of offering up his one and only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. I've told our disciples, I don't think I have the faith, even if God told me to take Josiah up on the, the fragrant mountains in western Beijing and to raise a knife and, and kill him. I don't think I have that kind of faith. But Abraham believed God, it says in Romans 4.3, and it was credited to him, it was counted to him as righteousness. Why? Because he knew God could bring his son back to life. He knew Isaac was the promised one, but he knew God, if he could, wanted to, could bring his son back to life, even if he used his own hand to kill him. Brothers and sisters, this is where the rubber meets the road. When your soul meets eternity, when you take your last breath, when your heart stops beating for the last time, there's only one thing that will matter. Did you believe Jesus? That's the only thing that's going to matter. It tells us here in um, Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household as well. Uh, verses 25 and 26 tell us a good example of Mary, the sister of Martha. When she did know that Jesus was there, she ran to him. She got up and hurried out of there. She wanted to be with Jesus. When tragedy strikes you, when an illness or a loved one loses their life, or you lose a job, or you're just, you don't know what to do, run to Jesus. Go to him. Fall at his feet. Cling to him during that time. Mary is a great example on how to respond to tragedy. It's exciting to think about how... Um, precious it is when you're in those times of unbelief to say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's also neat to see how God can bring faith out of faithlessness and belief out of unbelief. Um, These verses have become personally important to us as a family in this past year as we've seen its power in the lives of some of the young people uh, that we're working with. We had our Bible study in October in our home. Almost exactly a year from today, we were sitting in uh, actually my parents' uh, living room, which is our guest apartment, which once again is a ministry of College Park as we were able to rent that small apartment. Uh, Nate and Dale have stayed there, and uh, Stephen Carey and my parents and many other servants of the Lord. And we were sitting in that living room, and... Uh, having our chronological Bible study, and we got to this portion of Scripture, and Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And one of the gals was a Christian already, and she had been baptized, and she said, oh, we should ask the others. Do you believe this? We should give them a chance to respond. I said, wow, great idea. Okay, so we stopped and one by one. And uh, the first guy said, well, I've only been here for a month. Um, I want to believe, but I don't understand it all yet. Another girl said, well, I've been coming for a year, and I think I understand it, but I still have some doubts. And then we got to this young man, Jay, who was sitting on the side of the couch. Um, He was a very quiet young man. And we asked him, do you believe this? And he said, yes, I do. And I was shocked. For one thing, we'd only been going through the study for about three or four weeks, so he'd only heard the gospel about three or four times. And secondly, he's a really quiet young man, almost never spoke. And so it was uh, neat to hear him open his mouth and have the courage to confess his newfound faith. And then um, the young lady said, well, we should stop and pray with him and give him a chance to uh, confess his sin and repent and trust in Christ. And I didn't want to push him into it, so I said, well, when he's ready, we'll do that. And he said, I'm ready. I'm like, praise God, he spoke twice. He must really be serious about this. And so we, we didn't take any more time. We stopped right there. And it was beautiful to hear him for the first time in his life communicate with his creator about his newfound faith and his walk with him. He just got baptized a few weeks before we came back, along with 127 others. It took uh, two hours for the baptism service as they came one by one. Uh, the poor choir had to stand up there for two hours and just keep singing as over and over they would come up and they were singing. It was just beautiful. All for Jesus. I give it all for Jesus. And so pray for Jay and these other 128 um, young people as they now grow and, and walk with Christ and grow up in him. But I'll never forget the power of Scripture. It's like a two-edged sword and the fact that this um, 
These two verses were the key to him coming to faith in Christ. Never be afraid to ask a person, because I'm always afraid, I'll confess. I mean, this is my full-time job. For you guys, it must be too. I'm always afraid to say, do you believe this? I mean, there's a chance of them rejecting it. Well, it's not up to us, guys. We just have to give them a chance to respond. How many people might be just dying for somebody to ask them that question? Do you believe or do you want to believe? And many of them might respond. The third and final point is that Jesus is life. John 10.10, the chapter before this one, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. It says in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. 1 John 5.12, whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity every day when we go out of the house to take Jesus with us, or better yet, to go with him. He who has the Son of God has life. This is talking about salvation, but I believe it's also talking about our spiritual life. We can go in prayer and in communion with him, or we can go out on our own and try it without him. And let me tell you, if we do that, we're kind of like a a skeleton. We're already dead, according to scripture, if we uh, start each day without the Lord to help us along. Uh, Mary, once again, is a great example for us as she spent her time sitting at Jesus' feet, praying, pleading with him, begging him to believe and to live. I think what Jesus was trying to tell us ultimately can be summed up well in a statement by A.W. Tozer in kind of a profound way. He says, The man who has God as his treasure has all things in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, forever. The man who has God has as his treasure all things in one. Hudson Taylor, on his joyful and painful experiences in China, reflected right after the time his first wife, Maria, died. And he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Who does not thirst? Who does not have mind thirst or heart thirst or soul thirst or body thirst? Well, no matter which or whether I have them all, come unto me and remain thirsty? No, come unto me and drink. What? Can Jesus meet my need? Yes, and more than meet it. No matter how intricate my path, how difficult my service, no matter how sad my bereavement, how far away my loved ones, no matter how helpless I am, how deep are my soul yearnings, Jesus can meet them all. Yes, and more than meet them. Christ is all I need. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us through this, is that really, ultimately, it's not about me and you. It's all about him. And sometimes we get a little bit too focused on the here and now and we're a little bit too independent in the way we live our lives. And I'll include myself with this because I'm an American too, even though I spent two-thirds of my life in Asia. And there's, a, I think, a good visual reminder to help us live our lives in light of eternity. You'll never think about a roll of toilet paper the same way again after seeing this application. But if we take uh, one piece of teepee and fold it into four parts, each of those representing 1,000 years, that's kind of the last 4,000 years. Uh, each of those little blue lines is a centennial, and that's a millennium. That's a thousand years. And according to uh, Scripture, our lives are only about 70 years, or if by reason of strength um, you may live to be 80, it says. But that little blue line is your life. We look to that little blue line for significance. We try to find significance in relationships, family, friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. We try to find significance in our activities, our ministry, our work, adventure, sports, church. We try to find our significance on that little blue line during our lifetime. We try to find cultural measures of success, such as power, money, and status on that little blue line. But if we do that, unfortunately, we deny one of the most important parts of Scripture And that is, according to the gospel and according to this passage that Jesus was just um, speaking to us through in John chapter 11, that little line does not represent your life. Instead, it's that little blue line plus this dark blue line. That is our true life. In fact, we really shouldn't ask ourselves, what's the significance of my life right now in 2010? But instead, we should look into the future and say, what will my life have meant 70 years from now? In 2080, instead of in 2010, what will my life mean then? Or maybe a better question, because some of us might still be around, some of these kids, I don't hope to be here in 70 years, but in a 1,000 years, in 3010, what will your life here on earth have counted for and meant in a 1,000 years? Or maybe we should uh, even take it a little bit farther and say, one sheet from now, 4,000 years from now, how will we evaluate our relationships then? 
The only thing that matters, and I've been thinking about this in terms of my neighbors in Beijing, the only thing that will matter 4,000 years from now, it doesn't matter what kind of apartment they live in, doesn't matter what kind of car they drive, how many kids they had, uh, what they ate for breakfast, the only thing that matters 4,000 years from now is did they know Jesus. That's the only thing that matters. Ministry, sports, activities, what are we doing now through our lives, our activities, and how are we using our money and our positions to be able to lead people to Christ? Um, how about eight sheets? Can you do the math? 32,000 years from now, you begin to get the picture. And this is just the beginning of eternity. Anyone want to guess? 868,000 years from now, what will your life have meant? How are you preparing now for that moment then? Here you go. <laughs> 22,511,520,000 years from now, what will your life in 2010 have meant in preparing for that moment? And this is just the beginning of eternity. I mean, this uh, far exceeds our ability to even understand it. And yet, compared to eternity, that is just the start of our life with Christ there. According to Scripture, God is above time. We are already there. Did you ever think about that? That's a profound theological thought that you and I, according to Scripture, if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it's already done. It says he picked us up and he set us down. We are there at the right hand of the Father already. Let's read this together. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. There's risks involved. We are at war. And I saw a a neat quote recently. It said, uh, ships um, were not made to stay in the harbor. If we venture out of the harbor, life is dangerous, but we need to take that first step because ultimately the only thing that matters is our light of eternity, our time with God. Let's end and close with reading this together. Regarding your own godly investment in heritage, eye has not seen and ear has not heard all that God has prepared for those who love him. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. Lord, we look forward to the uh, time in heaven when it's not just going to be Eric and the choir, it's going to be angels worshiping all around us, Father. And it's not just going to be one hour, it's going to be 22 billion years. Father, we long to take as many people as we can with us. We know the only thing that's eternal is you, your word, and human souls. Lord, help us to win souls. It says, he who wins souls is wise. Lord, help us to be faithful to mobilize the church, both in China and in Brazil and all around the world, Lord, to be able to reach um, their countries, their nations, and their continents for Christ. Father, help us to use our time, our money, our energy, our children, the most precious possessions that we have to be able to prepare lives, Lord, for um, the time when they will face you face to face and you will say, did you know me? Did you believe in me? Lord, we want to know Christ. We want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that someday we may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.